Hello and welcome everybody. This is the Nick Dory Show, my podcast where I crisscross the animation industry and get to talk to really interesting and accomplished guests. I've been in animation for almost 20 years now and I still encounter tons of situations where I'm thinking, okay, how does somebody else deal with this problem? Do I do I have the best way figured out already or could I improve somehow? And this podcast is really about scratching my own itch. I get to ask smart people about their solutions to common problems and uh, I hope that you find this as interesting as I did. And I really appreciate any feedback on these episodes, so feel free to drop me a line at nick at nickdora.com, that's N-I-C-K at N-I-C-K-D-O-R-R-A dot com, or via Twitter or LinkedIn. And if you really like uh, what you hear on the episodes, feel free to give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, so it will show up for anybody else looking for similar content. This episode is kindly sponsored by Selection, the developers of Selection 2D, the software that is used in some of the most successful animation series in the world like Peppa Pig, Bluey, and Mr. Bean. In this episode, I have the pleasure to welcome Heath Kenny as my guest. We will be discussing animation development from all possible angles, the highs and the lows. With more than 20 years of experience in the animation business, Heath is originally from New Zealand and did a brief stint in the UK to work on the Gorillaz video Dirty Harry, for instance, before jumping over the channel to France. There he co-directed the second season of Cartoon Network's Robot Boy. After spending eight years in France, he was promoted to Vice President of Creative Development at Gaumont Animation. And after going it alone as the founder of UNI Creative in 2017, Heath wanted to set up a safe place to be creative and a creative place to do business. Now as chief content officer for Canada's Mercury Filmworks, he continues to prove that a French Kiwi is indeed a very rare bird. Please enjoy this conversation with Heath Kenny. Heath, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, not least for me. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you ended up where you are right now? Where I am geographically or where I am in terms of my career? Both, I think, would be interesting. Yeah, okay. Well, um, I guess... Uh, well, I, I grew up in New Zealand to start with. Um, I was born and raised in uh, the North Island of New Zealand in a very small town. Uh, I think it was like 20,000 people uh, when I was growing up there. Um, and I always, always had a kind of a curiosity uh, with Europe, I guess. And so long story short, I, I left school at 15. I was very young and uh, did a joinery apprenticeship, which is like furniture and cabinet making. And I had this dream of working in animation and curiosity with, with Europe. Um, I was kind of told that there was no such thing as, a, as an animation career or a career in animation at the time. So that's why I went for the cabinet making apprenticeship. And then uh, in the last year of my apprenticeship, I was lucky to have a genuine mentor uh, teaching me. And he was the one that pushed me to sort of leave and go to an animation college in Auckland. Um, where I met uh, a guy named Brent Chambers, who was the creative director there, and he had the crazy idea of starting a studio. 
um, and he wanted me to help him along the way. So he and I, I went to live in his basement actually, and he and I started Flux Animation, which was the first step to me leaving really. And it was during that period of time that I sort of start to, started to discover like everything that was going on in the world around animation. And it was during, you know, one phase of my development as an animator that I just uh, saw the first clip of Gorillaz released and then found out it was done in London and that was it. I was like, okay, well, that's it. I'm going. I want to I wanna work on that kind of thing. So I got a ticket to London. I sold my car, sold everything I owned again. It was the second time I did this. And, uh, you know, took a flight to London without really knowing what I was going to do there. I just knew I wanted to work on something like Gorillaz, which felt to me to be... Uh, innovative and interesting and, and different from what I was used to. And I arrived in London, uh, found out there was no work there and ended up working in a bar. Well, actually, no, I didn't actually start working in the bar because I, I um, the exchange rate was so terrible between New Zealand and London that it was like four times, the pound was four times the New Zealand dollar. So I think I'd lost all my money in the first month just by paying rent and like, you know, bond on the apartment and stuff. And then, um, and then I got a job uh, at, at Espresso Animation, which is a long story, but I won't go into details. And Phil Valentine, the head of Espresso Animation, was really, really kind to me and and, and sort of introduced me to the whole UK industry. Uh, he's a very well-respected uh, animator and director and, and entrepreneur. And uh, it was through that community that I ended up in France. So, And that's where I am today, in France. Great. And um, you've been now for uh for about a year is it at at mercury uh yeah exactly yep. and uh, and before that you've also had like very high high profile companies have uh have had the pleasure of working working with you having you on their staff um what does a usual day for you look like uh, because you also you also have uni creative and you have your job at, uh, with Mercury. Um, how do you split your time between those? Yeah, so um, it's evolved over the last uh, sort of year and a half. Uh, currently, um, I have three days like uh, fully dedicated to Mercury, and then two days where I can um, focus on admin for for you and I creative. And also, I have the which is like a somewhat wishful thinking because it's not that clearly compartmentalized. It's kind of like every day a little bit for Mercury and Every morning, uh, I have to get up and, and sort of get into uh, the reality of having a, a, a small company in, in France because there's a lot of administration. There's a lot of like like housekeeping stuff to get done. So I, I try and get that done in the mornings. Um, and then, you know, uh, from about two o'clock onwards, the calls start coming in and meetings start coming in for Canada. And that can go from anywhere till seven o'clock till, till 10 o'clock at night. Um, and then on my full days for Mercury, then then of course the mornings are much fuller with preparation for the afternoon, and then uh, and then the afternoon evenings is dedicated to uh, to Mercury. But I also you know have to fit that around a little bit around my kids as well because I have three daughters, so um, I, I work that also around like how I manage the school day and, and drop offs and pickups and stuff like that with the family. And and that you have a little bit of time with the family even even though you work towards the Canadian time zones, I, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky there because, um, you know, my kind of collective of co-parents, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm lucky to have uh, two fantastic uh, co-parents. And the three of us together, we, we manage the kids uh, as a unit and, and it works incredibly well. And uh, but I wouldn't be able to do it without them. And I think that's the, the thing for me that that makes it possible is that we all kind of like muck in and, and we all 
you know understand the industry very very well um and so that helps as well everyone everyone sort of makes it work and then the kids are so used to it now that they they have no problem saying hi on a conference call or just popping in and saying hey dad can we do this or whatever and they just you know they just become a normal part of the the my way of working as it were yeah yeah exactly um great um when i mean yeah so you've you've seen you've seen the world uh through like the eyes of somebody really kind of uprooting themselves from one side of the globe traveling uh settling on the other side basically uh and now again like working between between two different uh two different continents um what is there anything in particular that that this has taught you i mean i i suppose there are there there, there could be numerous lessons but maybe in regards to the the theme of the podcast like um in a work or uh animation related way has has there been anything that you've picked picked up on yeah absolutely um actually i'd say there's three things um it's been interesting because I've, i've just been thinking about this myself recently and and i'd say there's really th if i had to pick three things it would be uh <clears throat> the first thing would be Uh, there, there's more that makes us the same than there is that makes us different. Now, that uh, that sounds like a cliche, but but whether I've been working with animation studios in China, India, um, France, South Africa, England, the US, Canada, wherever, it's it's honestly um, like animation. I would say artists and creative people, whether you're in production or you're actually doing a physical like uh, um, you know sort of output based like. Uh, um, artistic piece of the puzzle you there's so much that makes us similar and we all got into this industry for surprisingly similar reasons and, and with a genuine passion for the art form or for storytelling or, or whatever it might be but it's so similar around the world and it actually doesn't take that much effort to get past the cultural and language barriers and get to what makes us similar rather than obsessing about what makes us different yeah so i think it's the first thing and then The other, uh, the other thing I think that's really, really important for me as well, especially when you're working with different cultures, is when things go wrong and you don't get the desired result, which happens, I think, more than people want to admit, it happens all the time. I think the first thing that I always communicate to my teams is that um, let's start by looking at what we communicated as a brief and what we asked for, because I would say nine times out of ten, the problem starts at the source. The problem starts at at the brief or at the at what it what was it that you asked for, and look for the areas of confusion in what you were doing, rather than sort of trying to associate blame to somebody else. Uh, I think it's much better to go, okay, look, well, this didn't work. Um, let's review what we actually asked for, and let's see how we contributed to this situation. Yeah, yeah. There, there is a just to interject. There's a. Um famous quote by by a late Finnish um, communications professor uh, who, who said that communication uh, fails every time except by accident. That's a very butchered translation, but but uh, yeah, it's so yeah. <laughs> that makes total sense to me. Absolutely. That makes total sense. Um, and then I guess lastly, the other thing is that I think it's important to travel. I think it's so important to travel to to confront your sort of preconceptions of other cultures and to have that um, 
exploration into into oneself into an, an into another culture i mean for me coming to france especially and learning to speak french and and through the prism of the language starting to understand the uh, have a deeper understanding of the cultural differences and an appreciation for the french culture um that's huge and it's had a huge impact on me as a person i think my worldview has shifted i think a lot of what you know i i I perceived or held on to as, a, as an opinion or, or, or point of view when I was in New Zealand on this little island um, obviously changed massively when I uh, when I started to dig into to, to the French culture and understanding of you know some small degree that the the history and the and the and the depth of the culture in France it's 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 such a big thing I think for growth uh, as a person. Definitely, and, and and that's all things that you take to to work. Then, after all, so it all plays into it. Yeah, well, exactly, because I think that that just in terms of from a professional point of view, like the the idea of being able to sort of um, not a, a assign blame immediately and react to a situation, uh, you have to be like, comfortable within yourself and comfortable with like conflict and comfortable with uh, like challenging like person to person kind of situation. So, so I think that openness and that understanding and that empathy for other cultures and other people i think it allows you to be a better manager and then uh this idea of like let's look for what makes us the same i think it really helps as well when you're trying to get the best out of creatives so as a creative manager if you're trying to get the best out of people you've got to try and put yourself in their shoes and you've got to try and understand okay what is it that in terms of motivation in terms of you know what is driving this person and how can i attach our kind of commercial wagon to their personal goals you've got to have some degree or an ability to, to sort of get out of yourself and put yourself in their position yeah yeah um i i actually now that now that you're um you're throwing me that ball i i really have to grab hold of it uh you have a wonderful post up on medium uh that i would urge anyone listening to this to also check out uh, where where you um, you talk about a lot of things that um, I mean the, the, the post uh, the post is called from maker to manager what I learned as a development exec yep and um, and you talk about a lot of things that I found very um, kind of familiar Having having worked at uh, at Rovio, in in um, even though I was managing the animation studio, but I I was in in this company that was at its core a a, a games and a software company, um, and 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 you discuss a lot of uh, things in this post. Um, one of which is what you just said, like attaching uh, a company's commercial goals to a creative's personal or creative goals. Could, could you could you elaborate a little bit on on what that actually means? Yeah. Uh, um, so specifically, uh, uh, what I was uh, referring to in that article was um, when I when I started at uh, Alphanim, uh, when I first came to, to to France, I started as a director, and then when I finished Robot Boy season two uh, as director there, um, there was an opportunity to move into the role of, of a development exec and at that time, I realized that like there was no, I, I couldn't reference a process. There seemed to be more frustration than there was like, you know, uh, desire to genuinely develop things. And then in parallel, uh, Daniel Leonard was starting the, the development studio in London with Cartoon Network. And so a lot of my friends were going there. So I felt like there was this whole thing about developing projects. And 
what I quickly realized was that it's very difficult to develop genuine, authentic projects if you're not developing people first. So, so then I had to realize, well, you know what, if we do want to evolve and, and start like creating a development like uh, department or a genuine culture of developing content, we have to focus on our people and we have to start looking for, you know, less of who are the experts and more of who are the genuine innovators and creative voices in our in our community. Like who are the people here that have something to say about the world they live in and, and, and you know, a genuine story to tell. And that it's not easy. And it's not something that's that's just because you're a, a good at as or an expert in a specific field. Um, you might be the dress, best drafts person in the studio, but it doesn't mean that you have something to say. And I th think that was the thing that I really dialed into and was trying to focus on there. So that's where specifically in that situation, it became really pertinent. And then I had to learn to become a manager because I, all I'd learned was to animate, to draw, to, you know, I had a brief sort of you know, experience of managing, which was more or less successful on Robot Boy, but it was more about survival than anything else. Um, and then suddenly I was like, okay, well, I need to learn to manage other creatives, which frankly was, was very difficult and took some time. And, you know, I had to stop relying on the skill set that I, that I had and start looking to develop new skills because, you know, I couldn't expect different results with using the same tools. You know what I mean? It's like, you can't take tools that you've learned as a, as an artist on a production and expect to apply them or transfer them over directly uh, to to your role as a manager and and often what I found unfortunately is when I when I slip back into explaining with drawing or using the comfort tools that I had the more comfortable tools that I had in my toolbox um, it was actually really negative for the artists that I was working with they mm -hmm. they um, they took it back like more often than not badly and as some kind of like unnecessary meddling in their work or a challenge in some way or there was a confrontational aspect of that which was very negative mm-hmm so so that's where that was important to me there and then it kind of evolved on and and as our, our development department kind of grew and our ambitions grew as well and also my understanding for what i think the process was in making a show um, and then it transferred directly into trying to develop uh uh for lack of a better term a, a kind of a show runner uh where we could have creator driven shows and so at gumo i only managed to do a couple but um but when we did them, they worked incredibly well. So I would say that was definitely a huge, uh, uh, it was very revealing for me and definitely something I took over, I've taken over with me to what we're doing at uh, Mercury. Yeah, yeah. Um, if, if we want to have a, um, like, let's imagine uh, somebody is listening to this and, and they are sort of struggling with, with the same, um, with the same things that, that, that you are struggling with. Um, do you like, are, are, is, is there in, in that, in that uh, framework of yours, um, are there certain things that you feel, you know, should be put in place first? I mean, the overall, as I said, the overall kind of mindset, of course, um, that that you have to get in place uh so that you have your 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 goal where where you want to where you want to take take the whole process but in terms of um the different tools also that you have um that, that you have outlined um is there is there like a process that you would recommend like if, if you don't if you don't do anything in your first month but implement this 
what would that be, for example? Well, oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that um, what I can do is I'll try and look back at my my uh, you know sort of thirty uh, year old self and and give that person some advice because I think that uh, I could have certainly used it. Um, I, I think if I think I'd be more process focused and I'd be more uh, I would move um, probably slower uh, and more with more intention to detail up front and get the process ironed out with smaller projects, smaller things where I'd, I'd be testing more things uh, on a smaller scale rather than sort of committing to one big thing. I'd try lots of little different things and focus on perfecting or perfecting is a big word, but improving and establishing a clear process so that when I do engage with our community or artists in the studio, I can answer their questions with clarity and, and demonstrate that we have a structured process. Because I think that that's a hugely important thing to give a, a sense that this is a safe place to be creative and we're going to do clear, genuine things. And if we fail, it's okay because it's part of the process. Yeah, yeah. And um, I've, uh, I've, I've had a discussion about um, like nomenclature and, and, and definitions for, for, uh, for things. Um, so I'll, 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 I'll ask you to dig in a little bit more into this. Uh, what, what would, what would, what would it mean in this case to have a process? What, what, what is a process in, in this sense? Is it a kind of a checklist that you go through and, mm. uh, you know, okay, somebody comes to me with a pitch for a project then I will go through the steps or is process something that is not dependent on you, but is more in tied to, let's say, the market uh, circuit? When are the next uh, sales market? What, 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 what would form such a process? Yeah, there's a lot there. I think that um, there's different layers, layers to it, obviously. But if we focus on the like my 30 year old self, um, I'm, I'm stepping into a role where we don't have a development process. We don't have a clear way of onboarding or offboarding new projects or new creators. Um, there is a lot of curiosity and enthusiasm from the community at the studio, lots of artists and different people that fancy themselves as creators. Um, so I think the initial process is how are we going to communicate this? How are we going to communicate clearly that we are uh, looking to option a, 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 like a, a specific number of projects. And then how will that take place? Like what will happen? How will I be selected? Um, if I submit my project, what what level of engagement am I expecting from, from the company? Uh, in France, you have a question of, uh, of author's rights and, and le droit d'auteur. So that stuff has to be addressed. Like how are they protecting me? Uh, the question of agents, like if you don't have an agent, are we addressing that? Are we making sure people are safe? They're okay. They have access to agents and we're going to have those kinds of negotiations. Um, just making that clear, like addressing any of their questions up front as soon as they engage with you. Having the answers prepared so that they're not like, hang on a minute, what's happening here? You're not leaving the space for confusion, mistrust and doubt. Um, and then also addressing the fact that well, if my project does get optioned, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean? What am I then looking at in terms of like time frame, process, uh, like remuneration? Like how much am I going to get paid? Like when will I see some money? Like I think all that stuff needs to be addressed up front and and quite just quite calmly and clearly and 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 then open for questions. Like, you know, like, are there any other questions you may have and you want things addressed? So I think in terms of the onboarding process, I think it's a case of understanding, okay, this creator in front of me, 
Um, I need to understand what they what their expectations are. I need to manage those expectations. I need to make it clear that like I would say nine ninety percent of all ideas do not become concepts, and ninety percent of all concepts do not become fully financed series. So everyone needs to understand that's the numbers we're looking at, right? We're not looking at like a guaranteed success here. Just because your show has been optioned or or your concept has been optioned, in the independent like world of animation, it doesn't guarantee that it's going to turn into a series one day. Yeah. Um, so I think that's onboarding stuff needs to be managed really, really well and clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think as with anything, setting expectations is and managing those also later is very, very important to get get people working working together. Yeah, exactly. And and sort of like, there can be an aspirational aspect to that. Like we have an aspirational goal, and you can set that goal. Um, but there has to be a it has to be anchored in realism as well, and 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 also like just describing the scenario of like what happens when we let the project go, and there have been you know multiple moments where I've had to let projects go and explain why, and I think it has to be coherent with what you said when you onboarded the project, otherwise it's going to create frustration and, and probably negatively impact your reputation. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm kind of exactly if if you have if you have expectations of like okay if we reach these and these. Um, milestones with this, then we can go forward. And if not, then you know we can't. But but having that discussion up front, I think, is really really important. That's yeah, that's true. I couldn't agree more. And that that's probably where, like, in terms of the layers to your question, I think that's where the the sort of broader company um, uh, process comes into play. One of the things that I really uh, wished I knew more about at the time was, and something that I've been very, very insistent on since is establishing what is the envelope, how much are we investing and in terms of our overall turnover for the company, how much we're we investing in development, what's that envelope, and then how how are we going to go about spending that, um, and, and how are we going to manage our risk. And so I think in terms of managing the risk for the company, the thing that works best for me anyway is to define it as three different like really clear steps and milestones. The first being uh, pre-development, the second one being development, the last one being pre-production, because those those things correspond with very clear like financial like risk management uh, uh, phases, um, and I think that just has to be super super clear, whatever you call it within the company, that everyone knows that that's what we're talking about. Like, where are we most at risk? Where are we getting to a, a more like comfortable shared risk? And where are we actually like locking into a production? Uh, can you go into a bit more detail uh, on, on that for, for people who haven't necessarily uh, your level of experience, um, how, how those steps relate to the risks being realized or mitigated? Yeah, so if you, if you start out and you're like, okay, I want to make a show, it's about, um, I don't know, a little bear and his best friend who's a, like a bird or whatever, and they go on a quest and it's uh, it's maybe 52, 11 minute episodes or whatever. That's your goal, right? And that's the kind of concept you want to come up with. Well, you have to create sales tools to then sell that idea uh, to a producer or to, or if you're a production company, to a network. So you have to kind of define what that package of um, material might look like and how best to give whoever you're trying to sell this to access to your the world you're trying to create, right? So the, so the shape of that will change per project. But essentially it has a cost so you have to figure out okay what is the cost of that and and how does that relate to what i've got at my disposal in terms of finance like am i how much am i willing to spend and i think that on average it's going to be if you're independent probably in, well, in europe at least if you're independent it's going to be somewhere between 30 and 50 
grand. It can go as low as 15 if you're just on your own, but but then you're going to have to be really innovative in, in terms of how you go about doing it. And I think once you start doing that and putting a price on it and saying, okay, this is how much we're spending, then you can start to sort of uh, really calculate, okay, how much are we risking to lose over the next 12 months, 24 months, or whatever it is you're looking at in terms of your first sort of um, a period that you want to sort of uh, manage this over. So you're starting to sort of get a sense of what is 100% your risk at this first stage. So the first stage is the most risky in the sense that it's it's 100% you. You might have some soft money coming in if you're in France or in other, other countries that have like uh, financial help, but still it's 100% your risk. Then once you take it to market and you test it and you get feedback and you get uh, a sense of is there any real interest for this project or not, you're either going to drop it or you're going to pivot or you're going to double down on what's working, right? So so you have a choice then. You've got now an educated uh, decision to make, like are we going to take the next step? And the next step is um, we're going to prototype the show for real and we're going to test the narrative structure of it. Or maybe we're going to test the, like, the look of it, like the final render. But you have a partner on board with you, and that's the feedback you were looking for. Is that you you have someone who's willing to engage with you, whether it's a distribution company, whether it's a, a producer, or whether it's a, a network. They've agreed to go into a development agreement, and they're going to test this with you and figure out, okay, is this actually going to work? And so then you start to, you know, maybe you build a pot, you create a pilot or an animation test, or maybe you do a, a full animatic of an episode. There might be a certain number of scripts involved. But that that sort of financial risk is now shared with a partner, so it's getting it's decreasing, and it's it's more of an educated risk now, or, or calculated risk that's managed, and uh, and you have a sense of there is an appetite for this thing, and we it's, it's looking more increasingly likely it's going to get made. Um, and then once that's completed, you delivered all those assets, everyone's like signed off on it, and they're like, oh, this is great, we love it. Um, then you go into pre-production, which is the moment where your uh, theoretical budget and your finance plan up front is now being confirmed or 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 brought into qu- into question, <laughs> and often there is a there's a financial gap there, right? There's often there is like, okay, well we have you know x amount of money from our broadcaster, we have x amount of money from our uh, whatever our local funds are, maybe in, in France you have the CNC and things like that, um, but we're still missing you know a certain amount of money, so ha- we either can go back to our creative team and and put the challenge to them as like how can we reduce the cost of the production sometimes it's very simple maybe we can say look we in terms of our estimations we were having four new characters per episode in this first season we're going to reduce that to two um and then we're going to change the line work from if it's a 2d show we're going to change the line work from from colored line work everywhere to just black outlines um those kind of things over you know a large number a large episode order can have quite a lot of an impact on the budget so there's lots of different things you can do to adjust at this stage when the reality of your budget and your you know creative ambitions um either align or they don't and and i think people forget that they can come back to a genuinely creative team and say do you have any solutions and people can you know like i'd say creative creative teams are sorely underestimated when it comes to that they they're growing people and they can hear that kind of reality and they can come up with solutions if you if you give them the opportunity so so that's uh that's the three steps for me yeah yeah that's Again, one of these things like I wish I wish I would have attended your your lecture when I started out, or even just you know a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish someone had told me. <laughs> we we learned the hard way. I mean, I have to say that that Alfred and Gamora were were uh, courageous in, in in figuring this stuff out. So so I think uh, you know I wouldn't have learned any of this if it wasn't for for those two companies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
digging still a little bit more more into into the world of of structure and and calculated risks and lean well that you also wrote about um, in in that in that same article you also talk about smart goals and i i think that this ties elementally into the in, in, into the whole idea of of being able to manage something um, towards a budget and towards a schedule um, then again i would i would imagine just because the um, the development process is so uh, nebulous. Um, what would be your tips as to how? Because I, I can I can even see you know myself sometimes wondering like we we know so little about our variables at this point uh, on this particular project. How could we you know uh, because. Um, yeah, the 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 acronym SMART goals S M A R T, which stands for specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, time bound. I think the one of one of the things that people often struggle with is the measurable uh, or or the time bound part yes, of it. Absolutely. Um, do you have any any kind of tips, any uh, ways of thinking about this that 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 can help people find? A way of putting a measure or a deadline or something on on development tasks, which often feels so, um, yeah, so very very foggy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a really really great question. I think that that this can seem overwhelming. It can also see a little bit like snake oil. Like people are like, oh, you're trying to sell me the snake oil kind of like nonsense, the 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 easy fix to a big problem. Um, and, and there's a lot of pushback on processes as a rule, I think, when it comes to like creative work. Um, but what I found is that well, I think one of the first things to say is that the best process is no process at all. Right. If you have something very natural and people all agree and they all get on and they're like minded and everything works well. I mean, I, I experienced that in the in the world of commercials where we we were just a small group working at Passion Pictures and we were all very like minded and, and we all kind of knew what we like to do and. And it just kind of worked, right? And we, and so, you know, when we're working on gorillas with like, you know, Pete Candle and Robert Valley and, and even Jamie, you know, to Jamie Hewlett to a degree, he was sort of dropping in and out, but it was, it was folks that, you know, we were all there for the same reasons and there was very little management and it was fine, you know? Um, and, and that was great. But if you're doing anything at scale, um, you need a process. So you need something that ultimately is, um, <clears throat> you know, you're, you're, you're applying a very artificial thing to create a, a, a sense of this is natural and normal and comfortable. So it might feel a bit artificial to start with, but it, it's necessary to get to that space where you're doing something natural at scale. Um, and that's that's the, the thing that people kind of need to be aware of, that um, I learned a lot through riding horses as well, is that it really is about being as uh, firm as necessary, but as gentle as possible always. So So when you... I think if you become too addicted to process, you can actually choke the, the the natural way of doing things. But if you are wary of it and you accept that the best process is is a light touch, is to have as little impact as possible, um, then it starts to work in a really natural, organic way. But in saying that, to to come back to the to the smart goal uh, uh, question, 
it's about doing it uh, uh, incrementally. So I think you need to start out by setting uh, really lofty goals and ambitious goals. A big goal is important. Um, and then then you need to just forget that, look at your feet and do things incrementally, like one step at a time. So that's where it starts to become uh, very important to set smart goals and to just establish that uh, we're going to take this one step at a time to hopefully achieve something remarkable. And so the only way to really do that, I think, is to is to I start every project with a workshop and we define what our kind of collective goal is and something that we can all get behind. And then once we have that, we build a plan on how to achieve it. So we'll set the goal like a long term goal and then we'll work back to, OK, what's the first step? And then how long are we going to take to do this first step? What are the what are the deliverables so we, we start to get a measurable sense of what we're delivering and then how long are we going to take to deliver those things those elements and then what do we do once we get there we're going to you know we're going to review and then we'll decide what we do next for the next step but it starts to become really like incrementally step-based and uh and i think it's much easier for everyone to get their head around and failures feel less like failures and they feel more, more like a logical pivot and we're all just making the next right decision for the project yeah, yeah, you know, it's having that type of roadmap is is really valuable. I, I also feel because you you often feel that you're climbing a mountain or or something and you're looking up at the mountain and the only way to get up there is to put one foot before the other, uh, as cliched as it as it sounds, but but that's the way. It's to really, get. yeah, it's really not cliche though. I mean, I. I had the experience of, of climbing uh, Mount Kinabalu in, in uh, Borneo, and I really remember uh, there's a there's a place on Mount Kinabalu where you come out of the, the the tree line, and it's just sort of this volcanic rock. And because it's in you know a tropical part of the world, there's no snow and ice, so it's just this flat volcanic looking rock, and nothing moves for hours and hours. You're one foot after the other, and no, none of the scenery is changing, nothing seems to be moving. It's a it's psychologically really, really difficult. And for me, that's the closest thing to working in development. It's like you, nothing <laughs> seems to be moving, and you're just putting one step in front of the other. So you need a plan, you need a plan, and you can't hope that you're gonna have a strong enough leader that is not gonna ever suffer any doubt, and is not gonna start to wonder, or have a panic, or have their ego kind of vexed, or whatever it is. You know, you you need a process. Everyone needs a process. Yeah, yeah. I was um, I was laughing at, at at that analogy because you know the saying it's funny because it's true, and <laughs> uh, and and I, I do I do agree also that you need like this is something that I was taught by um, by the producers on the feature film I worked on uh, right after graduating. Um, they they were saying that you have to get yourself into this almost mentally insane state where you think, no, you don't think, you, you believe that your project is the best project ever because there's no way that otherwise you would reach that, that yeah. top up to that monotonous hike. You just, you just have to blank out parts of real. Of course, you always need to go back to you know, realistic risk assessment and and all these kinds of things. But but basically, once once you're once you're on that journey, you have to kind of yeah, just be insanely focused on it. Well, I think that's it, and I think that once yeah, once you commit, once you engage, then it's like it's really about process driven focus, and let's get it done right. Let's get because I think that the 
forward momentum is so important for a, a project in development and and i think there's nothing worse in the sense of we're not going anywhere we're not we're spinning our wheels we're stuck and i think that that's something that is is soul crushing for for everyone in development i think and um something to really kind of avoid if you can we need to get the sense that we're moving forward somehow so that's i think from a managerial point of view it's one of the biggest challenges is to make sure that you can provide that sense of forward momentum to your team even when you're in this kind of foggy like messy middle you know i think that's you know that's that's a tough one for for everyone to navigate for sure yeah yeah um the <laughs> i'm actually just looking at uh, my bookshelf here at the office when you said messy middle and I have uh, Scott Belsky's book of the same name uh, I love that book. Looking at me. and and he I, I think he he really talks well about like having your team he's talking about the tech startup but I, I feel it's the same thing like you have your team in a car with blacked out windows and you just have to tell everybody what the scenery outside sort of looks like and where you're going and how far along you are as a, as a leader of the team yeah, exactly, exactly, and 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 the thing is that, and I think that's one thing that I that I I'm really grateful uh, to 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 the front the French uh, animation industry for is that people here are so critical about um, you know they're not just going to blindly follow you so they're constantly going to challenge you and I think that's the one thing is is the is being aware um, that yes there's a certain amount of reality distortion involved in this process. Um, but you have to be open to being challenged and you have to be open to the critical voice in the room and embrace it and and not take it personally and not put your ego ahead of you and 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 just you know uh i would say be open to what if what if this criticism is correct like let's let's analyze it let's let's pull it apart have a look at it and then see if it has any real if it holds water and if so you know act accordingly because ultimately we are uh in an ideal world, we are all here to serve the project in question. Once we've engaged and once we've decided this is what we're doing, then we are all here in service of the project and not ourselves. Yep, yeah. Um, turning that idea of like insanely believing in your project, turning that around, um, when do you know when to either abandon or I mean, there are there are different levels of, of course, you can you can just freeze a project or or you can just declare it uh clinically dead <laughs> but but um do you have um ideas on on how to approach that question because it's when when you're when you're in that slog through the terrain that doesn't seem to be changing and and you haven't heard back from the you know latest bunch of broadcasters that you you met at the at the market because of course they're also busy people and and um, you try to kind of find some data points to justify a decision of either putting in more resources or or to to pull the plug or at least put the project on ice uh, what, what, what are your thoughts on that yeah I, I think there you know obviously there's, there's a lot in there as well I think that there's a lot to take into account certainly like there are contractual obligations like if you take an option out for X number of years and and your your project is coming up for renewal. You, you need to look at how much are we committing financially, and and to, to if we if we are just wanting to hold on to this for a better timing, like the, the timing's not right right now, and so we need to you know shelve it for a while, and then we'll come back and look at it. Um, you need to look at how much that's going to cost us, right? And 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 is it worth doing? There's also accounting uh, stuff to take into account as well. Sometimes it's a good time to let a project go. Like sometimes it's like you know what, but, you know because of the way the company's been operating 
this last year, um, we can probably write this project off um, as a loss uh, at the end of this financial year. So is that what we're going to do now? So I think you need to have a broad sense of your op your options. Um, but then I think, um, like in terms of knowing when a project has lived its life, I think they're it's hard to give it one like simple answer, but I, I think that like a few things that have happened to me, uh, uh, there have been moments where I've realized that the creators had one vision and the market had another. And so after having tested a different different um, opportunities uh, you know, around the world, whether it's MIP, whether it's uh, ANSI, Kit Screen, whatever it is, like you get a sense of what the market's looking for. And so I think you can't, at that stage, you shouldn't fight against the nature of things. And so if you're, creators want to say something or tell a particular story that has no home currently, then you should let it go. You should let it go. And also, you can also admit that you're perhaps not the best home. And there has been times where where, where creators have made it very, very clear about what it is they want to make, um, which perhaps took time for them to understand as well. And so we got a year in and then we realized that, you know what, we're making a show that our company is not really uh equipped to do and so it's better to let it go and there'll be a better home for it and i've even introduced some certain creators to other studios to say look you should do it with this studio it's a better studio you know whether it's zilam whether it's bobby pills whatever it is it's like you know you should probably do your adult show with them and you should probably do this show with those those folks because they'll they'll probably it's, it'll be a safer pair of hands for this show and and so let's just agree to to separate and go separate ways here and there are other times where it's just like you know um we're getting to a phase now where you know the the market's changed and for example i think the best example of this is the is the preschool space i mean when i think about how much that has changed over the last 15 years of me being in france uh, when i first arrived here nobody was doing preschool uh, or it was the thing was kind of a, a a common sort of understanding that the market was not looking for preschool projects and no one was doing it and then it shifted to, you know, oh, now we're doing it again. It's just for younger kids. And then it was like all bridge and upper preschool. And then now it seems to be shifting back to, uh, you know, we want to embrace more traditional feeling preschool shows. Um, so I think I think it's that's a space that's changing all the time. And so, you know, there was a couple of projects we walked away from when I first arrived here um, that uh, got made in, in other studios. But but ultimately, we would, we would never have been able to make them because the producers in question made them you know, by injecting a large amounts of their own money, um, which they were able to do because of their business model, which was completely different to ours. So I think that's the thing of like just accepting the nature of things and not taking it personally, I think is a big thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned going to uh, going to the the markets and um, pitching the project to, to different um, broadcasters or producers and so on. Yeah. Um, when when you develop uh, shows, do you usually develop them with a particular broadcaster in mind? Uh, which you know the counter argument to that would be, if they don't like it, you've uh, run up, um, you know, as you mentioned, between thirty and fifty k of losses, basically. Um, or do you kind of uh, have a more um more freewheeling approach on some projects um do you do both um i think more so than ever um unless you unless you've been specifically contacted on on, on uh you know an rfp like a, a request for project from a from a network i think that 
what I focus on is is let's just make a good show and let's make a really like a clear package for like what the promise of the show is like because that already is incredibly difficult so let's just do that and then as we get towards the you know now we need to present this and we're going to put it into a package of like presenting it then let's make a list of who the potential homes are for this show right and and, and based on what the show is not based on what this uh, an opportunistic kind of like what this network might want currently because also unless you have a very close relationship with those networks what you read in the trade magazines uh, about what they like m or what they're looking for may no, no longer be the case by the time your project's ready to pitch so i just think you're going to get into an awful like uh like chasing your tail scenario with that if you if you if you just sort of you know basing it on you know your your uh, instinctual kind of like assessment of the marketplace unless you have a direct line and again some some producers do and some producers have also a really good nose for for what's changing growing and shifting in the marketplace and and, and again it's a personal thing but but i do think like my focus is uh let's make a good show first um let's try and tell your story well um i'm a big believer in creator driven content and opinionated content so let's Let's try and make this really clear and strong uh, with a strong creative voice and a clear reason to exist. Um, and then we'll find the right home for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, with with the different financing structures that there are, uh, of course, you know, sometimes you find a home where where you get one, maybe an SVOD player who, who uh, pays for... For the whole for the whole production, or you might find uh, a big a big broadcaster who would take up your project as a as a worldwide deal. Um, when you look at the sort of more piecemeal approach that a lot of European uh, projects are uh, are facing, um, do you have like do you prioritize uh, the broadcasters that that you approach, or uh, is it for you? Is it the way that uh, any positive feedback kind of moves the snowball forward, um, even though the the budgetary contribution might not be as big as as from another broadcaster? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a it's a very important question to ask yourself. I think before you go to to a market for sure. Um, but but I think more even more more uh, I guess specific than that. I I think you need to know like everyone that's going to a market needs to know like what their company is. And and I know that might sound a little abstract, but like I think you you shouldn't pretend to be all things to all people. Like like for example. Like Gaumont uh, is a cinema company, right? And above all else, it, it's uh, uh, well, when I was certainly there, it was a distribution, like a, a distribution company, right? Distributing cinema and, and television. They're also also a production company, but like the history and the, and the sort of DNA of that company for me at the time was was a distribution company. So it's a different like uh, attitude towards content, a different attitude towards like how we make money. So. I think you need to be honest and embrace that, like who you are as a company. And then if you take other companies, like Mercury, for example, is an incredibly um, high level uh, uh, and prestigious uh, service uh, uh, studio. They offer uh, an incredible, like incredibly safe pair of hands for for someone that has an ambitious goal with their show, right? So we can see from their clients that they, they execute incredibly well. 
on very high-end content, but they're not a distribution company. So there's no point pretending to be one. You know what I mean? So, so you can't go to a market and then expect to present to the same people that a distribution company would would be presenting to. If, if I went, for example, you and I create, if I went to the market and started posturing and pre- presenting myself as a as a as a company that's going to manage your your licensing, merchandising, and your distribution, people are going to look down their nose at me like you're absolutely absurd. Like you know, <laughs> you're you're you know you're you're not E1, you're not Cake, you're not you know not any of these bigger companies. So who, like why are you posturing or pretending to be this way? So I think it's good to be realistic about who you are and your place in the marketplace. And I think it's good to be really clear about like how you can or cannot contribute to financing a show because I think a distribution company. Who can put in an MG on on a on a on a show is a very different conversation than an independent producer that doesn't really have much to offer and they're looking for you to bring everything. It's a different conversation. And if you're uh, running a distribution model, you're probably looking to retain rights and to and to make your money off the exploitation of those rights. So the last thing you want to do is give all the rights away to finance the show. Does it make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So I think I think it's about and, and that's probably one thing I find really frustrating about the marketplace as well is that I find a lot of people haven't thought about this when you go into a meeting. And so when you start to ask these questions, um, there's there's silence or or sort of a bubbling answer. And it's just like, well, well, let's have let's figure this out, you know, and, and I, you know, it happens to everybody. I mean, there's 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 times where you start an initial conversation, it sort of mutates and turns into something else and then you don't have all the answers. And of course, that happens. Uh, it's happened to me recently as well. And, and it does happen. But I try as hard as I possibly can to try and be as upfront as I can about what I can and cannot do. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Know thyself. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, so, which, is, which is really hard because there's who you is. wish you were and then who you really are, which is sometimes not great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, you need, you need ambition as well. So. <laughs> oh no, totally. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that there's nothing wrong with being ambitious, but I just think it's a case of like, you know, start from a from a, a self-aware kind of place of like, okay, this is who we are and this is what we can offer, but maybe we could do this and that and the other thing, and this is the plan of how we get there. And I think that's that makes total sense. I mean, I'm a big believer, and I think I can't remember even where I picked this up from, but I think it was in Blair Ean's, uh book, uh, how the the How to Win Without Pitching Manifesto, which is a fantastic little book. Um, but it, I think it talks about the buying cycle and this idea of like, you know, establishing awareness first, then inspira- inspiring somebody and then reassuring them. And for me, that that should be the approach to every meeting at every market. It's like, OK, yeah. because the amount of times I've walked into meetings where you just know this person can't remember who you are. And you're like, OK, so they don't know who I am. So start like really clearly. like OK, well, let's focus on the awareness. So you establish in the initial meeting, initial greeting. This is who I am. This is what I've done, right? And and this mm-hmm. is the company I'm currently working for, and this is what we offer as a company. So we just get that out of the way. Like that's who we are. Awareness is established. Then it's like now I'm going to inspire you with the, you know, the whatever the sort of prototype is or the the sales material I have, like beautiful artwork and maybe a trailer, whatever it is. I don't know. Just you know, you inspire them. Like this is the promise and the opportunity of this show that's in front of you. Now I'm going to reassure you, which is the last piece, by making it very clear about what we can and cannot bring, right? Mm. Um, yeah. So whether I'm in France, whether I'm in Canada, that conversation is going to be different. Whether I'm a distribution company, whether I'm a, uh, a production company, it's going to be different. You know, so but you can make that very, very clear. And so therefore, uh, the person has less questions about like, is this a crazy person, or do they actually have a plan? Like, do, what does this make sense? Or you know, okay, this is very pretty, but oh, I can't really trust this 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 whole thing, and I need to know you know who this this unknown quantity is and how we're going to actually work together. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and even even if you're you know if you're somewhat if if you have some relationships, uh, when uh, when we started our current production company, HorrorWorks, um, I mean I. I have a good network from the time I worked at Rovio uh, on, on, on the Angry Birds content. Mm. Um, still, if I go out and pitch something, uh, the broadcasters that I might have known for years, they, they know that I won't be able to animate 52 yes. episodes myself, let alone that I can't animate. But, but even if I could, uh, I couldn't produce that show for them. So how do I reassure? And I, I feel that's that's a very important part of the sales process is that reassurance, yep. which which then has led us to to try and find as high caliber um, collaborators on our projects, whether it's writers or or the studios who create the uh, the visuals for us, because we don't have our own studio, we we can choose uh, for each project what kind of style we we want to pursue, but but. Um, to make sure that whoever we we add to our so-called package, uh, that they make it more likely for uh, a financier to say yes, and less likely for them to to ask even more questions and get even more confused. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No, absolutely. And and I think that's the um, like it's such a good point. And I went through this personally as well after uh, you know leaving Gomo. I mean, the thing is that. You know, after 15 years of, of Alphanum and then Gomor, you know, I remember talking to Nicola, who is the current um, head of the uh, the animation uh, activity at Gomor. He, uh, he and I talked about it and I was exhausted and it was time for me to, to sort of make a change. And, and, and so we came to sort of, you know, obviously an agreement of how we're going to do this. And But when I came out of that... Um, it was uh, it was so strange because like all the things that you had been learning and doing um, suddenly had no relevance and you had to sort of figure out how am I going to repackage them in another in another kind of like uh, offering and also you know in another version of yourself to some degree and and you know it taps into sense of self worth all that kind of stuff obviously and then you arrive at the marketplace and people look at you as though you're the same person but you're clearly not because you don't have the weight of the structure behind you anymore so. You've got to start another conversation, and so in starting that conversation, I think it it really starts with having that sense of self awareness, and and without saying too kind of woo woo, I you know I I had to go on a on a bit of a journey myself before I even went back to a marketplace. Like after living Gomo, I went I took a year of you know just literally carrying my backpack around and and going surfing in Portugal and just kind of like tripping around, just thinking about what it is that I wanted to do and why why on earth would I do it? You know like how am I going to go about this? And so, so that was really important for me to to sort of recenter myself and then come back with a a clear messaging to the marketplace. Because I think if you're at all ambiguous, people just don't get it. They just don't get it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, we we could change gears a little bit here because we're already getting into personal uh, again a bit more personal territory. Um, Maybe it was something that you might have thought about while uh, surfing the waves in in Portugal. Uh, maybe it's something uh, you've thought of uh, since. But is there um, is there something that you wish you had known when you first started out uh, in, let's say, now particularly in your kind of development and um, the more kind of managerial and development roles? 
Yeah. Um, is this something I wish I'd known? I mean, I, I think I think I, I yeah, I wish I'd known. Uh, I wish I'd known that, that this this kind of cliche phrase of the tools that got me here are not the tools that are going to get me there, kind of thing, right? That they're that I needed new tools. I wish I'd knew in that I needed to train, and I wish I'd knew in that I needed new tools, and and that while everybody in the industry was telling me how great, a, like a blessing it was, how great it was that I could animate and I knew how to draw and and all this kind of stuff, it was actually more of a hindrance than it was uh, a help in becoming a, a, a functional manager. And and I wish I'd concentrated on developing soft skills, like you know communication skills, obviously, um, but also managerial skills and had some understanding of the emergence of design thinking, companies like IDEO, like when I met uh, uh, one of the employees from us two and she kindly welcomed me to the London office and that's how I you know, came to understand a lot of this process that they use that the animation industry in, in well, my bubble of the animation industry hadn't even heard of. Uh, I was just, it was a revolution for me and, and I wish I'd known that that stuff existed and there were books and there was help and there's a community and I could have learned so much more if I'd have known um that it was uh, it was available you know and, and i've only learned that really since going out on my own and i and that's where i discovered you know all kinds of companies process books thought leaders inspiration teachers mentors boot camps trainings you name it i mean it's i've just discovered a world of knowledge that i that i didn't have access to that sounds exciting so so recommendation for people to start digging into design thinking in all its in all its facets yeah, and embrace your curiosity and, and accept that, you know, we don't really know anything. Like, we don't know much. You know, even, I think, if, again, there's a bit of a cliche, but this whole thing of, like, you know, somehow I'm an expert. Like, honestly, we're all just dabbling and trying to figure it out. Like, most people don't know anything, and and we're just all trying to figure it out. And so um, when I think I find resources, I try and share them as much as I can because I just assume that someone could benefit as much as I am benefiting from it. So, um so I think, yeah, like, you know, let's just accept that we're all on a sort of a learning journey and, and there's a lot to learn. And and it's, isn't it great when we discover other tools that can help us? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Are there are there certain, I mean, you mentioned mentors. Are there uh, certain people that you have in your orbit that you sort of lean, lean on uh, regularly for, for feedback or help or when you're in a dark place or whatever? Yeah, well, I mean, I um, there's a lot of different ones, and they've all kind of trying to uh, evolved and changed. But um, but I think like you know, you know, my co-parents I've re referred to them earlier as well. Like they both helped me a lot, um, and they're they're great sources of uh, of advice and inspiration and sort of grounding. Um, but also AJ and Smart in Berlin as a company, but also as a group of people in a community have been incredibly helpful. I mean, I, you know, I I went. Three years ago, I think it was to do the boot camp. Maybe it was two and a half. I don't know. Uh, to do a uh, design sprint boot camp there with Jake Knapp and who wrote the book Sprint and uh, the team from AJ and Smart. And not only was it incredibly well put together as a boot camp and welcoming, um, there was a lot of follow up from that as well. And and since then, uh, I was I returned to the studio to or to the agency to test my own version of um, workshopping for animation, and they were kind enough to give me a half a day with some of the team, and and I ran my my version of a workshop with them because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing like fundamental things wrong naively. You know, I didn't want to 
start making that like a service that I offer without being sure that it was somehow vetted by experts. So I went back and, and they were kind enough to give me half a day and we ran the workshop and I got some incredibly valuable feedback. Um, and that, that came from um, Penny Blackmore and, and Brittany uh, Bowering uh, specifically. And they both, I just, they, they taught me the value of giving honest feedback and like, and, and also understanding that it's okay to ask for permission to say, look, you, what kind of permission, what kind of feedback are you looking for? And is it okay if I give you feedback? And they did that in such a eloquent and, and effective way that, that just, I was like, oh my God, I wish I, I wish I could be more like this and I want to learn how to do this. And so, uh, so they've been great. Like that team from, from AJS Martin and then Brittany and I ran the, uh, uh, a masterclass at uh, Kidscreen two years ago. Uh, yeah, not this year, the year before. And again, she was great. Well, I mean, the thing was we did <clears throat> the masterclass, um, which was sold out, which I was very surprised about because it was, you know, a, a sort of a left to field thing. I wasn't sure if anyone was going to turn up. And uh, But then afterwards we sat down and she, you know, she said, well, again, would you mind if I gave you some feedback? And we went through it and she gave me really, like not easy to hear, but really good valuable feedback that improves the way i work and and i think that's the thing that i really love about this community like outside of animation the, the, the sort of digital product design community is that the feedback is so valuable and people really take the time to think about it and they give you really valuable feedback so and then the other the other one that's been a huge impact for me is is uh well both mills and sinks but mills in a more indirect way but but uh sinks from us too uh he was really kind enough to take time which again i don't I can't really say thank you enough for this, but it was only two calls, but we had two phone calls where he just talked me through his experience with us two um, and the challenges he's faced um, with building that company. And and for me, it was just hugely beneficial to to have uh, that kind of advice. And especially, you know, with what we're doing at Mercury, it's it's, it's incredibly relevant right now for like how we're managing the uh, this new part of the company's development like you know again you know we're experts in the, in the service side of things but in the development side of things it's a new part of the company and it's almost like a little startup next to the big brother company right so um that's been hugely helpful for me in terms of like how we manage the cultural shift yeah yeah, yeah. i've made a lot of notes also regarding uh regarding books and and people's names now over over the conversation. Um, I think that's actually that to, to that's a really good point. Like to in terms of books, like uh, um, books as well, like mentors, yes, but also books. Like I, I everyone's recommended books to me, right? So that like Scott Belsey's Messy Middle was just incredibly like helpful to me. Um, uh, thanks to AJ and Smart, I discovered uh, a radical candor, which is really great about how to give feedback and how to how to sort of communicate with people. I think, um, and then uh, the power of moments is a huge, huge influence on me. And I think anyone that's working in development, if you're going to read one book, read the power of moments. It's just for me, it's like that is the key. Is like we're creating an experience here. We're not just creating a project. We're creating an experience. When we take this to market, we're trying to create an experience. Um, so instead of thinking about me as the pitcher, think about the pitch e, like the person receiving this this project. Like if we put them ourselves in their position and we think about creating an experience for them that's agreeable and and delivering on the promise we're making up front, then suddenly the whole thing becomes slightly different in terms of how you shape it. Definitely. Um, great. I've 
I think I think we're we're slowly we're slowly wrapping up both in terms of time and questions. Um, I'll I'll ask you one one more left field question that I just picked up from our mutual favorite podcast, the Tim Ferriss Show, <laughs> that we talked about earlier. Um, but this was such a good one, I couldn't pass this one up. Um, what are your open browser tabs right now? Uh, yeah, I love that one too. I actually wrote that down. I, and I love his, I love his idea of collecting good questions. So I actually uh, started doing the same thing. I was like, you know, I'm gonna write that one down. Um, you know what? Let me just have a look. I don't actually know what I have up here. Let me have a look. Um, because I do agree with him that that it does give you an interesting window into into other people's thinking. Okay, so currently I have. Oh my god, I have a lot of tabs on. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> have too many tabs of it. So That's have, another one. Like, how, do, does somebody only have one tab on at a time, or do they have do do they have dozens? <laughs> okay, so I so I have uh, a webinar um, about the Lightning Decision Jam uh, and remote uh, uh, workshopping uh, from. Um, it's a mural backstage pass uh, tutorial uh, webinar. Um, so Mural's a, a tool that I've been cu curious about and been looking at more recently. Um, and that's a really, like, if you're interested in learning more about that, it's a great, it's actually a great uh, webinar. Um, and it's run by Robert Scroby. I think, I'm not sure if I'm saying his, his, his last name correctly. How, how, how do you spell that? S-K-R-O-B-E. And he's from uh, the Dallas Design Sprint uh, company. Uh, mm -hmm. And he's really an inspirational figure as well in the world of like design sprints and, and remote work. Um, I have, uh, what else have I got here? I've got something about the coronavirus, obviously, uh, as well. <laughs> Open up here. Um, I've got, ah, I've got a, a tab on the Fibonacci sequence because I'd never heard of that before. And I was like, what the hell is that? So I was looking yeah. at. I was looking at how that's used as, because uh, I mean, I heard of like the, you know, the sort of, um, uh, the, from a composition point of view, like, you know, the, um, uh, how that's the Fibonacci sequence used in, in comp for composition, but I had never heard of it used as a tool for like uh, Scrum or Agile work, right? And so use specifically Scrum and like how you can measure people's output, like predict output for teams. So that's what I was like, wow, I've never heard of that. So, uh, so I was digging into that. Um, I had a thing about affinity diagramming, uh, a tab from about Jeanette Winterson is one of my favorite writers. Um, and then I have a reference. Oops, I just dropped the I had a reference from a, a, an, a South Korean artist who was sent to me by one of our directors uh, on ArtStation. And she's, well, he or she, I'm not sure if it's a he or she, uh, has done incredible artwork. But um, so that's what I have open. That sounds really interesting, and uh, leaves me with with my with my final question. Actually, uh, is there anything I should have asked you but I didn't that could have had to do with any of these open tabs or or something completely different? Uh, wow. Okay, let me have a think about that. Um, hmm. Or anything you want to want to say, people in. And kind of in closing to this discussion, they should yeah, I, keep I, pondering I, or think about. I think that uh, there's maybe something we could have dug uh, dug into about um, the challenges facing, uh, I guess, European uh, producers uh, when working with uh, North America. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that uh, that I've kind of been on the front line of for for, for a number of years now. 
Uh, and and maybe vice versa, because like I think now, you know, working with Mercury, I can sort of look back at the other way as well. Um, but I think that's that's um, that's a challenge that I've been on the front line of for quite some time, and I've had um, success and failure, and I have a lot of opinions about why certain things failed and other things worked. Is there like let, let's let's say we we have a we have a round two sometime uh sometime later uh, about this as well but um if if we want to if we want to turn this into a slight teaser then for that do you want to lift any particular issue or idea or experience from that um yeah so so i think like from a co-production point of view coming from france like working with Disney on, on a number of projects, uh, one our first one, which felt a lot like a mercenary project, we were attaching creators to a project that wasn't that didn't belong to any of us. That experience, like what that was like and how that felt working with Disney, to actually moving towards a, a, a creator-driven show and developing that that director and that, uh, that particular talent into into a person that was driving the show and how that impacted on our uh, exchanges with the network. And then also like, you know, things like, you know, taking a brand like Naughty and then reinvigorating it and developing it with directly hand in hand with our European or French team and, and DreamWorks. That was an interesting process. Um, you know, when we opened up our uh, the Gourmet office in the US and, you know, thanks to Katie O'Connell's success on the live action side, finding ourselves next to, um, you know, Narcos season one was in production and we were starting on Ephesus Family and suddenly we're in this whole other world. And we're this kind of like plucky little French studio, but ultimately it's difficult to find your place, right? So it's it's interesting and challenging and there's a lot of cultural hurdles to sort of jump over. Uh, and then also, uh, you know, now as an independent, like as an independent, you know, going to places like um, South America or South Africa um, or, or, or India, what have you, and people looking at France like a, like a, you know, sort of a sacred kind of like opportunity, like the 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 holy land of like independent like animation getting financed, um, and and sort of having to sort of you know educate people on the reality of that and how it's not quite as simple as perhaps they think, um, and the same you know for the U.S. side you know, and the North American side, explaining that there are you know uh, loopholes to jump through if you're going to work with a French company, especially if you're you're tapping into this uh, money from the CNC. You know, there are obligations, not just in terms of spending, but also in terms of the talent you work with. But that doesn't have to be a bad thing. And that can actually be really great if you're going to lean in to, to work, working with people in, a, in a, a, a genuine partnership, right? And not just like, do as we say, don't ask any questions, we want it delivered, right? So, so yeah, there's a whole lot to unpack there, I think. And um, uh, there's good and bad, I think, in all of that. And and there, I think there's certain ways to navigate it that are better than others. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that does warrant its own its own separate discussion. It's such a big, su such a big subject. Uh, but yeah, at at this point, you know, I'd really, really like to thank you for this discussion. This I I made I made copious notes about this myself, and I'm sure that anyone listening will will get a whole lot to think about from from this. So thanks again for for joining. For joining the podcast uh, it's an absolute pleasure and and uh i can't thank you enough for doing it i mean i look forward to listening to the to the episodes and and i think we need more of this kind of discussion and and uh, sort of transparent exchange and, and learning from one another i think it's uh, it's very exciting and the more of this the better i say let's do it thanks Heath. thank you and that's it for this episode 
thank you so much everybody for listening please uh, do send me your feedback do give the podcast a five star rating if you enjoyed what you heard and if you want to be kept in the loop on upcoming episodes you can go to nickdora.com forward slash blog to sign up for the newsletter so you'll be notified about the next episode take care hear you soon